I picked up a new hobby. And I know for some of you already that's a dangerous thing to say. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big hobby guy, but this hobby's a little bit different. Um, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty excited about it, actually. It's really not a, a typical, normal hobby. Like, I want to be a tornado chaser. All right, like, here's the deal, you know? Anybody else? Tornado chasers? I'm going in the spring. We're, ta- we're loading up my van, and seriously, we're headed to Oklahoma. We're just going to figure it out, you know? Seriously. But here's the deal. Uh, so when I was younger, when I was like seven or eight, um, we lived uh, in, uh, in northern uh, Illinois, and I saw these tornadoes kind of come out of this cloud um, behind our house. And ever since then, like, I've been hooked. I've been freaked out by them. I mean, don't get me wrong. But there's like something so... Um, and then I saw Twister. That movie was amazing, wasn't it? You know, the dude like ties his belt around the thing and the toy, that's amazing, you know? That would never ever happen. Like that guy would have been roasted, you know? But um, so, so, so then I started watching the Discovery Channel. Have you guys ever heard of this channel? Discovery Channel? It's brilliant, you know? They like don't do sitcoms and stuff. They teach you things. It's incredible. Have you guys, yeah. And so maybe some of you guys have seen this, but recently on my On Demand, I've, I started watching Storm Chasers, and oh my goodness, these guys built this vehicle called the Tiv. Have any of you guys seen this? All right, so this will relate to three of us. So they built this big vehicle called the Tiv, and the Tiv is a 14-ton ride. You know what I mean? Like this thing is sweet; it's weighted down, and the whole purpose of the Tiv is they want to like they want to park this thing right in the path of a tornado, buckle like roller coaster seatbelts on and get a camera shot from right in the middle of a tornado. Like, I want to be in that thing. You know what I'm saying? Right? But, but, but here's, here's the point of the whole, this whole moment here. They wake up in the morning, and this is what I love. They're like, all right, so where's the storm going to be? You know? All right, it's going to be in Hayes, Kansas, and they're like 200 miles away from there. So they all load up in all of their vehicles, you know, and all their nerdy meteorologic vehicles, you know, and they head to Hayes, Kansas. And here's what's sweet. Like, early in the morning, like, is this going to be the day? Is this the day when we see the big one, the F5? You know, is this, is this the day? Which is kind of strange anyway, because like an F5 like destroys things and yet tornado chasers get excited about that. There's something kind of weird about that, you know? And so as the day goes along, they get closer to haze. And like, dude, you see that cloud, that cumulolumbus cloud? Like it's, it's huge, you know? And, and it starts to look blue and they're getting excited and, and they're like, whoa, whoa. Like do you, and it, like things are starting to form and they get closer and closer to haze and now it's like 7 o'clock at night and they've just been sitting and waiting and it starts to rain and it starts to hail and whenever there's hail, a tornado, that's like a tornado, uh, a tornado chaser's Mountain Dew, you know what I mean? When it hails, it's on, you know? And so it starts hailing and they start looking out the windows and they're like, here it, you know, and they start to see a little circulation in the, and, and their hearts start beating fast and then there's that moment right before the thing comes out of the cloud when there's complete silence and they're all just waiting. Is it going to happen? And bam, it happens and like their hearts, and, and they, never, they never talk during a tornado besides like freaking out, but their faces, their faces just have this tremendous amount of glee, you know? So all of this waiting through this day and then bam, it's there, heart beating, chest ready to pop out. They're so excited. I, I can't wait for that moment. So in the spring, if you want to go, all right, 50 bucks and an insurance liability and you're with me, all right? In Genesis chapter 1, maybe you'll know the verse. The scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we've said over and over and over and over here in Matthias that ever since the very first passage in the scriptures, creation has been waiting 
for the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament Scriptures was pointing to Christ. So much prophecy, all of, the, all of the elements of the Old Testament, everything is pointing to Jesus. So all of this waiting all day long, maybe, maybe it's here, maybe, and then He shows up. And friends, tonight is that moment of like, right before the calm when you're waiting. Tonight is the climax of the entire Scripture. Tonight we begin the journey. We started in Luke some, I don't know how many months ago. And tonight we see the crucifixion of Christ. What the whole Bible has been waiting for. When God would send His Son, live a blameless life, and go up on the cross and become our Passover Lamb. And so tonight, look, I'm going to tell you something right up front. This isn't going to be your typical like Good Friday rendition of the crucifixion story. So if you're ready to be drawn in and you're thinking already, I need the tissue box, you're misinterpreting tonight. We are going to learn the Scriptures. We're going to teach the Scriptures. We're not going to try to tickle each other's hearts in the hopes that some emotional breakout happens here. We're going to teach the Word. Are you guys with me? All right, so we're on tonight. Beginning with understanding last week, Pilate, for the third time, says, look, this man is innocent. I don't know what you guys are talking about. He's not the leader of some rebellion. He's completely innocent. And so he washes his hands. And he says, here you go. You guys do what you will. And they say his blood then is on our hands, which I can't even imagine saying that. And so Jesus is let out of this trial on his way to die. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be starting in verse 26 tonight. Oh my goodness, friends. I'm, I'm so anxious. It's like my heart's beating fast. This is it. This is what the whole scripture is about and everything will point back to afterwards. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. When we taught several months ago how to study the scriptures, one of the things that I challenge you guys on is when you look at a verse, you instantly should begin asking questions. You should write them down in a journal and every verse of scripture should produce like five, six, seven, eight questions. So when you look at this verse, verse 26, right? Put it up on the screen for me here. When you, look at, uh, uh, Luke, when you look at this verse, all of these questions should instantly be coming to your mind. The first question that I see is, who is the they? And they let him out. Well, who's the they? Well, the they is the Sanhedrin, in part. The Sanhedrin, you remember, is made up of 71 officials who have been the big proponents of the death of Christ. The they is also some Roman guards, centurions possibly, that, that are leading this whole pack to kind of help push Christ to death. There's a couple important questions uh, that, that we'll answer here in a second, but the end of the verse should draw our attention. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, like, whoa, whoa, like what's happening here? Well, what's interesting is it was Roman law that when someone was crucified, they had to carry their own cross. So to put the cross on someone else besides the one being executed tells us what? It tells us that the Romans were beginning to get frustrated because Jesus has already been what? He's been scourged. He's beaten, he's bloody, and he's weak. 
which is another moment where we see the fully man part of Christ. Amen? So we see the fully man part of Christ, bloody, weak, beaten, and then they put the cross on this other guy. It probably weighed 30 or 50 pounds. It was probably just the crossbar of the cross. And so they, they marched this guy behind Jesus. But hold on a second. Look at this verse a little bit. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. When I study the scriptures, the first thing that's always popping in my mind is, like, is there another verse that could be connecting with this? Is there something else that this is like an allusion to or a pe- How about in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus says that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so then you start to, then you start to sit back. You're like, hold on a second. Right here at the very beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus, we see this tremendous picture of what it means to take up your cross and follow him. We'll come back to that. But there's two big, 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 big questions in this verse. Amen? Right? You're like, you don't even know what we're talking about yet. First, they seize Simon from Cyrene. First of all, where's Cyrene? It's a great town name, right? It's not in Missouri, I'll guarantee you that. It's in northern, look at, look at, northern Africa, in modern-day Libya. Northern Africa, 800 miles away from Jerusalem. That, that's a journey, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know some of you guys like to walk. Try that one on for size, you know? And, and, and why has Simon journeyed from Cyrene? He's journeyed from Cyrene because it's the, it's the Passover. And he reaches Jerusalem on Friday. He's probably just walked up after an 800-mile journey from Cyrene. Now, this gets interesting. If you open your Bible and you begin to, like if you get on BibleGateway.com and you type in Cyrene, right? Very, just like that, you know? Somehow the keyboard's exactly the, at the height of my eyes, you know? If you type in Cyrene, what you'll find is Cyrene is a town that's mentioned at the Pentecost. And Josephus, the ancient, uh, the ancient Jewish historian, says that there was a Jerusalem center in Cyrene. So apparently, there's this pack of Jews that's around Cyrene, but it's not done there. In Acts chapter 11, we see that Cyrene sends out preachers. So apparently, something happens in Cyrene, so much so that they begin to send out missionaries. They begin to tell people about Christ. Interesting, hold that thought, Simon. Now, uh, what I've realized through the scriptures is not everyone has a name. And especially not everyone has a name and a place. You may think the woman at the well is a name and a place. That's pretty general, you know? The, the, the Roman centurion. I mean, he had the greatest faith in all of Israel, Jesus said. He gets no name and he gets no place. So for me, a huge question from verse 26 is, why does Simon get a name and a place? Who is this guy? It seems random, doesn't it? 800-mile journey, all of a sudden the Roman guards grab him out of the crowd and pick him up. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 15, Mark gives us some more indication of who Simon is. It says that he has two sons, one named Alexander and another named Rufus, you know? What were they thinking, you know? We sh- no one's named Rufus here, are they? Right? Sorry, right? Yeah. Now, okay, sorry, yeah. That's just the beginning if you get on Bible Gateway, very easy to do, and you type in Rufus, what will happen is there will be one more mention of Rufus come up 
outside of Mark. And it's not in a gospel. It's in Romans chapter 16, verse 6. And my mind starts to blow at this point. In Romans chapter 16, Paul talks about this man named Rufus being a fellow servant of his, and he talks about his mom in a very positive light, mind you, right? But he talks about Rufus and his mom. Now, let's talk about what we know. What we know is that Simon is a man from Cyrene. He travels 800 miles to Jerusalem because it's the Passover. He's picked out of the crowd what seems random. The crossbar was put on his back, and he follows Jesus up to the cross. But let's get hypothetical for a moment, shall we? In the scriptures, there is a reason why you would give someone a name, right? You would give him a name because he has some type of like, image to him. Now, I guarantee you, if you're from Cyrene and you show up in Jerusalem and you walk out and the cross is put on your back, people are like, oh, there's Simon, right? No, 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 they don't know him, okay? He's from a long way away. So he's given a name and a place because somehow people know, especially Luke who writes many years after the death of Christ, Simon becomes a known guy. Is it possible that Simon walks up follows behind Jesus, has probably never, ever heard of Jesus. Can we agree? He's probably never, ever heard of Jesus. He's lived 800 miles from... It was a Jewish center, not a Christian center. He follows Jesus up the path, and no one can tell me, after that experience, the humiliation of walking up, possibly being spat on, that he gets up to the top, hands over the cross, and is like, peace, I'm out of here. No, no, no. Simon, for agree with me, for at least a few moments, stops and says, who is this guy? There's something different. There's something strange. And he stops and he watches. And this is only hypothetical, but he has a name and a place for a reason. He goes back, probably after the Pentecost, because he probably stays there because he's not going to make the 800 journey twice. You know what I mean? I don't know how gas was in Jerusalem days, but he's not making that journey. So he stays for Pentecost. He sees fire come down from heaven. And then he goes back and he begins to tell his sons about this man named Jesus. And then his sons, Acts chapter 11, are sent out as missionaries, as preachers, to, to tell the gospel to the world. And along the way, our man Rufus meets Paul, and Paul calls him a fellow servant. Hypothetical. But we can say this for sure. Rufus travels 800 miles, and he's chosen out of the crowd, and that is a tremendous picture of the sovereignty of God. The world would say random, right? He's walked all this way, marches up to the crowd. Romans were like, yep, you. How brilliant is it that God sends this guy on a journey, places him exactly between the people perfectly, and the Roman soldiers look out there and they pick him exactly. There is no room for error with the sovereignty of God because he fulfills his plan. And so he grabs this guy named Simon, and he's given a name and a place in the Gospel of Luke because something happens to this guy. My friends, what we can do is we can celebrate, especially if you're a believer in here, the sovereignty of God. But get the image. He 
saves us. He's sovereign. And then this guy ends up where? Right behind Jesus with the cross on his back, headed on the hill to die. What a brilliant picture of the call of you and I's life. What a great picture of the sovereignty of God. And if we miss that for a moment, then we miss an opportunity to say Jesus is King. This guy has a name and a place, my friends. And I believe it's because God's mighty hand chose this guy out of a crowd to follow Christ. The scripture goes on in, in a telling way. A large number of people followed him in verse 27, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Any women in here tonight? Any females? Uh, okay. I guess the teaching changes at this point, right? You know? Look, look at this. I love this. Luke over and over and over in his gospel talks about women in a very, very positive light. Have you guys noticed this? Like, you guys should be celebrating this as women. In fact, let me take it a step further. In all the four Gospels, there isn't one woman who ever rebukes Jesus. In all the four Gospels. All the four Gospels paint women in this very, very positive light. And so in this case, women, who has a, a very a big interest in women, in the biblical sense, you know, he, he adds women in here and talks about professional mourners. That's who these women are. Professional mourners. You're like, that's not doesn't sound like a bad job, right? They're professionally mourning a crucifixion. Okay? Now there may be a couple people who know who Jesus is here, but the reality is, is these women are, are just that that's just what they do. They mourn uh, uh, the, the Greek word here, the, the root word is uh, is is con, uh, kopto, and it means to cut or to beat one's chest, and, and, and that is just the, the image of mourning, just the beating of a chest in, in anguish. That's who these women are. There's a large crowd, and there's women following, and look at this in verse 28. This is unbelievable. Jesus turned to them. He's on the, he's on the path to die. There's women following him. And he turns to them, and he says this, Daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Does this cause anyone else to say, This is a strange conversation on the way to die? He's beaten, he's weak, and he looks back. And because Jesus never gets distracted from the will of God, he sees a moment to be who he is, and that's a prophet. You remember when he comes into Jerusalem at the triumphant entry, you remember what he does over Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps. The city of Jerusalem is on his heart. And then he turns to the women, and understand this. He says, you would be better off if you didn't have children and could have never nursed, then what's coming for you? Which in the Jewish culture is huge because to be barren was seen as like some disgrace that God had looked down upon you because of some sin in your life and so because of that, he would keep, uh, 
keep your womb infertile. Uh, you guys will remember in Genesis over and over and over, how many characters did we see that was barren? And that was a struggle, right? And then eventually God would bless them. It was a crazy journey. He says you would rather not ever having had, had kids and not ever having been a nurse, which is a crazy thing to say. Why? Because Josephus writes that between 66 A.D. and 70 A.D. during the fall of Jerusalem, that um, because of the famine in the land, that parents were forced to cannibalize their children. Thousands upon thousands of people die. And what does Jesus say? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. In other words, he says, my death isn't nearly as tragic as anyone misjudging me. Let me say that again. My death isn't nearly as tragic as someone, and in this case, the nation of Israel, misjudging me. And so don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Let me put it to you this way. Do not have sympathy on me. And now we're striking a major chord in the Christian church, aren't we? When I think about all of the moments when I've struggled with the story of the crucifixion and I've heard the stories and I've seen the preacher present it and I've watched the movies and I've learned about the brutality, what happens in my heart most often is I begin to sympathize with Jesus. Because I think somehow I can relate to Him. I begin to sit back and say, Man, Jesus on the cross, that had to hurt. The blood, that had to be a wretched thing. Jesus, look at yourself up there. And my heart begins to sympathize. And when my heart sympathizes, it turns away from the way I should see the cross as a thing that's drawing me in to follow a God whom I'm called to serve. And when it pulls from sympathy, my friends, then I can really, really focus on service. Let me uh, give you a story to uh, examine this. One of the most embarrassing moments of my life uh, some of you guys may actually know the story. I was in a, we moved from Waverly, Iowa. Uh, so any of you guys know where Waverly is? Any of you guys know where Iowa is even, right? Like who even knows? Yeah. And we moved from there to Vandalia, Illinois, central Illinois. And about six months after we moved to Vandalia, I was 12. We decided to go back and visit all of our friends in Waverly, the good old town of Waverly, right? Jason actually drove right through Waverly on his journey from Alaska to here, right? Waverly, big town, about 10,000 people, metropolis, bloom, booming. So anyway, we go back to Waverly, and uh, I, I'm, I'm with my friend, and, and we're going to go to the movies that night. We're going to hang with all of our buddies, you know. It's going to be great. And, uh, and I tell him, a, a new band had come out at that time named Criss Cross. Have any of you guys ever heard of Criss Cross? They had this little jig called Jump, right? Mr. Mack will make you, you know what I'm saying? You guys with me? Yeah. And so I, I had this idea. I was like, okay, Sean Thomas was my friend's name. I was like, Sean, here's what I'm going to do. I just want to show all my friends like what's happened to me in Illinois, you know, just the awesome things. So I'm going to dress like crisscross. Well, for those of you guys who know what crisscross dress like, they turn their clothes inside, you know, they, like the, the back was in the front, you know. And so I get in the car, and I, I mean, I'm feeling cool, you know, seriously. My, my buddy was like, dude, you can do, I, so I'm flying solo, you know, flying solo to the movies. 
There's going to be like 10 friends of mine, my old buddies, like I can't wait to see him. Jace Johnston, you know, just a money name, a great guy, blonde, just awesome dude. And uh, so I show up, I get out of the car, you know, and I start to, I start to reach out my hand to start to give my boys some, some love. And I, have you ever been looked at like you're a, like an alien, you know? These guys, like they, they started stepping back from me, you know what I mean? They're like walking away. And, and I, I just, literally, that night was the last time I talked to any of them, all right? I never, I never talked to one of them, and I'm, I'm, I never talked to one of them after that. Like, I can just imagine the gossip. What, is go, what kind of water does Illinois have, you know what I mean? Like, like, what is that, you know? In my desperate attempt to relate to these guys, I failed miserably. And when it comes to the ideology of Christ, our desperate attempts to relate to Jesus will always fail. We confuse passages that talk about Christ coming in human likeness, Philippians. And we begin to think that because He related to us, that somehow we can relate to Him. And when we start to connect that relatability, it's when we create the boyfriend, best friend Jesus, and then we begin to sympathize, and then we're pulled away from serving a king. Put up the Hebrews passage. Hebrews puts it this way. I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, not his brothers be made like him in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered what he was tempted, look at this, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is one of the promises of Scripture. Because he went through it, that he can be our helper. When you flip it, do you understand what you're saying? I can be Christ's helper. Tonight isn't about relating to Jesus. It isn't about sitting back and having sympathy for Christ on a cross. He specifically tells these women, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. Do not have sympathy for me. Weep out of brokenness because of my atonement for your sins. Do that. Weep out of an awe for my obedience of the Father. You can weep for that. Weep for how I would be obedient to God, even death on a cross. You weep for that. But not for a moment should you look at me and say, Oh, bloody Jesus, I can feel your pain. No, you can't. And no, you never will. And at this point, we would say, Well, what happened to Simon? Simon walks up the hill, the cross is taken off of his back, and Simon doesn't die. But what he learns is that as you follow Jesus, there is suffering. It's not relating to Christ, it's suffering. Scripture says it's sharing in the, what's the word? Fellowship with his sufferings. And that's the brilliance of our call to serve and not to sympathize. And so, my friends, for the rest of this journey through the crucifixion, it's time that we separate our emotions from our view of God and we get this, this mindset that that's 
the God I'm called to follow and to serve. And if that causes me to weep because of my insufficiency, then praise God. Then he, he makes this unbelievable reference in verse 30. After he, he has this strange conversation. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Again, this is happening on the road for him to die. This is, uh, he's quoting here Hosea chapter 10 verse 8, which by the way is also used in Revelation chapter 6 verse 16. This isn't a good verse. This verse is talking about, look, like if the mountains encave on you, or if the mountains are your protector, either way, it's like quick death or great protection. The fall of Jerusalem is coming, and that's what you must weep. Your impending judgment. Isn't it interesting, the irony here? Judged by the Sanhedrin, pausing on his road to Calvary, judging. Now, one more, one more quick thing on this verse before we move on. Uh, who was Luke written to? Anybody? Theophilus. Okay? Uh, a lot of times, when we're reading Scripture, we forget things like that, don't we? Especially at this moment. If you're Theophilus, you would have received this letter. And you would have been reading it. You remember who Theophilus is. Who? He's a Roman official. So as you're reading this, page by page, probably drawn in, right? It's like one of those books that you can't let. Like, what's going to happen next? At this moment, Theophilus is reminded, oh yes, Jesus is a prophet. He sees and speaks things that will happen in the future, and so far, they've always proven true. So don't forget that this is a letter written to a specific person on Dr. Luke's case for Christ to Theophilus. Are you with me? All right, let's keep going. Here we go. Verse 31. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? I'm not a lumberjack, okay? But when, when a tree is green, like how, water, okay, it's flourishing. It's a healthy tree, isn't it? It looks good. There, there's a lot of health to that tree. When it's dry, obviously things, the leaves, die, kind, of, kind of what we're seeing right now is it goes through the season. Here's what Jesus finishes this statement by saying. If things go wrong when things are right, then what happens when they're wrong? One more time. If things go wrong when things are right, what happens when things are wrong? The Messiah is with you right now. And things are going wrong with the Messiah in front of you. In other words, you've misjudged him. So if things go wrong when things are right, then what happens when things are wrong and the Messiah is in here and you're judged? Answer to that question. Anyone? Really, really, really bad in the Greek, you know? I mean, things are going to get wretched. And so on his way to die, he turns to these professional mourners and says, judgment is coming for the nation of Israel because they're misjudgment of me. Verse 31, or verse 32. Two other men both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Now, these two guys, similar to the sovereignty and the choosing of Simon, we'll see this as a precursor to next week, are two specific guys that were supposed to be next to Christ at this specific time. I love sitting back and marveling at the plan of God, don't you? I love sitting back and understanding that next week we'll see the salvation of one of these guys. These two criminals are supposed to be on these two crosses at this exact time so that you and I could sit back 2,000 years later and read about their story and see the grace of God. Amen? 
Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, that can't be good, you know? There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. We've heard of many, um, we've heard of many words talking about that mountain, haven't we? A skull is one, and skull is the Greek word. Uh, the Aramaic word is Golgotha. The Latin word is Calvary. We've heard all these words before. I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen the place that they say was the hill because it looks like there's a skull in the mountain. Either way, let me tell you something. This wasn't a random place. This was a place where people have been executed before. People have been crucified on the place that's called the skull. It wasn't there just for Jesus. There has been much blood spilt on that mount. But on this day, there will be a new blood spilt. But on this day, there will be blood that means something. But on this day, a death and an execution will mean so much more than any other death on that hill. On this day, blood becomes life. On this day, blood spilt is the representation of a slain lamb. And if you're sitting back at this point, and you're reading this like Theophilus would have been, what is your conclusion? Hold on a second, I've been reading all the pages. He's being killed with one criminal on his left and one criminal on his right. But as I've been reading, I don't see a criminal. Yes, it's, it's, it's true that it, it fits Isaiah that says he'll be numbered with the transgressors. But Theophilus has to sit back at this moment and say, this guy isn't a criminal. And if you're Luke, do you understand? You're writing this to a guy, making your case for Christ. And so at this moment in the story, as Theophilus is reading your prayer is that Theophilus sits back and says, this guy is undeserving, but he's going to the cross anyway. And so Theophilus sits back, and his mind starts to grow of the things of Christ. That's my prayer for you right now. For me, right now. An undeserving Christ headed to the most brutal type of execution ever. Crucifixion was done from 6 B.C. to 337 A.D. where Constantine finally banned it. Thousands of people were killed because of crucifixion. The most excruciating part of crucifixion was the suffocation that happened because you had to lift and expand your lungs so much that you could get a breath in. And so the torn, tattered, weak, Christ, the fully man, fully God, part Jesus, who couldn't even carry His cross for hours, lifts Himself up on this cross. And again, this isn't a moment where we sympathize with Him. This is a moment where we sit back and we say, that's my God. The cross is the Christian symbol. Many of you have worn necklaces with the cross on it. You've worn shirts. You've worn cool bracelets with crosses on it. It's become our symbol, hasn't it? But the thing that troubles me is that is the symbol of the cross really a symbol 
that we're able to articulate well. And what I mean by that is Theophilus has a moment here to sit back and say, that's my God. Torn, tattered, bloody. And we use the, the cross as some symbol of hope. But can I ask you a question? Are you able to articulate why? Beyond this, well, that's where Jesus died. Yes, but tell me more. Tell me how of all of Scripture was pointing to it. Tell me about the Passover and how a 3,000-year tradition was changed in one night when Jesus said, I am the new covenant. Tell me about that. And you could say, well, the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. Exactly. That's why the world needs to see a bunch of believers who are looking to a cross with a guy on it who's torn, tattered, and bloody and say, that's my king. That's my God. Well, what do you mean? He's torn tight. Yep, that's him. Numbered with the transgressors, undeserving and obedient to God day by day. That's my God. And then, verse 34 happens. The famous verse. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, which is a fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. If I'm Theophilus and I'm reading this, I sit back and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's not a criminal. That's not a criminal whatsoever. That's an innocent king on a cross displaying in a prayer why he's on the cross. And if you're Theophilus, all these things are going through your mind. Yes, 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 Luke, I remember you've been teaching me through some different understandings that Jesus is the high priest. And so no longer do I just get to go into the Holy of Holies one day of, one day of the year on the Day of Atonement now because Christ is my intercessor I can go through Christ to God all the time. This is the great picture of the intercessory of Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive their wretched hearts, they need it. Have grace on their souls, they need it. I don't deserve death, but I'm doing it in obedience to you so that all of these wretched hearts might taste forgiveness. And so Theophilus sits back reading this story and he says okay I've seen you as a prophet and now I see you as a priest but as Theophilus closes the letter at this moment he has to ask is he my king is he my king it's the same question that you must wrestle with here tonight. It's one thing to see a torn and tattered preacher. It's another thing to see a bleeding priest. And it's a whole nother thing to see a king. It's a whole nother thing to say, oh, how I pray that I'm Simon. What do I mean by that? When your heart moves from sympathy 
and you understand the call to serve and we view Christ in proper light, here's what happens. Is then we say, I get to follow Christ bearing my cross. Our language changes from have to, our language changes from need to, our language moves to I get to. Oh, the privilege of following Christ with a crossbow of a cross on my back, following His every step. Oh, the blessing of suffering. Oh, the joy of salvation. We get to sit back if He's our King and reap the grace and the forgiveness, my friends, of amazing God. Our entire language changes. And the world sees a movement that isn't based upon sympathy, need, or feeling, but based upon a bunch of people who have said together, that's my king. That's him. Yes, he will raise from the grave. But that's our symbol of hope because that's my king on there. Dying for the sins of those he would call to himself. That's my king. And when he's your king, my friends, everything else loses perspective underneath the glow and radiance of the glory of Christ. Why don't you guys stand with me tonight? Craig, can you just turn all the, all the lights off for me? Look. What do we do at this moment? What do we do? Do we just leave here and say, yeah, he's king, that's great. Or do we have a moment for our hearts to wrestle with a call to repent because a king calls us to a different lifestyle? Look, I don't know what it is for you tonight, but I know it's something. There's some of you men in here that are deeply struggling with lust, the grip of pornography, daily living in the shame and unable to serve because the shame is so intense. And so, yeah, you may say the right things when you're around everyone about the fact that He's King, but when you're all by yourself in your lonely room, what you're communicating is, I'm the King. My flesh rules. Let me encourage you men tonight. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Scripture tells us to put to death the things of the earthly nature. Romans chapter 6 tells us that the death of Christ, through that death, our sins were crucified on the cross. There's some of you females in here who are sinfully over and over and over creating this image in your mind of the way that you have to appear and look and sound and talk like. While all the while Scripture is imploring you as a female saying, those who fear the Lord as women, those women are to be praised. To me, the only rightful response tonight, if it's gossip, if it's lust, if it's trying to build your own kingdom, if it's a 
great disaster that you put yourself in financially, rooted from sin, it's time right now to repent to the king who says, Father, forgive them. And when we would get to sit in this room tonight and say, oh, that we can have forgiveness. That we can call out for grace. So I want you to picture that thing in your mind right now. Whatever that one thing is that's keeping you away from service and causing you just to try to relate to Christ and sympathize for Him right now. Could it be that because of the death of a Savior on a cross, you could cry out for repentance? That that sin would be killed? That the lust or the gossip or the judgment the thing that's gripping you, the thing that's causing shame in your life, the drunkenness, the getting high, whatever it may be tonight, what does it look like for a church tonight to say, that's my king. That's my king. And he calls me to repent and to take up my cross and to follow him. Let's just spend a few moments right now together repenting I believe it to be true to you I believe the cross is real to you I believe that repentance is possible to you I believe that it is possible because scripture says so to have no condemnation because of Christ Jesus to you and if so than grabbing a hold of the promises of God. We sit back tonight as a free church because of the death of Christ and we say in you and you alone we are here. In you and you, you alone can we worship. In you and you alone do we find grace and mercy. So church, let's worship shameless, spirit-filled, blood bought king followers.